The following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up the seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. After he sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmantha. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf they had with them on the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, It is because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? Please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. We're nearing the halfway point in the gospel according to Mark, which is also a turning point, a hinge. In fact, next week's passage will be one of two climactic moments in the gospel according to Mark. There are a lot of significant moments, of course, but next week's passage and then at the very end of the gospel of Mark are two climactic moments, Um, and I'll explain more what that's about next week. But As we near this halfway point, um, especially given the fact that we haven't been in Mark for the last couple of weeks, I think it's just worth reminding ourselves of where we are and how we got here. So this is uh, the earliest of the four Gospels, essentially biographies of Jesus that were written. Um, Mark was writing in the mid-60s AD to an audience of predominantly Roman, that is Gentile, non-Jewish readers, 
and he's introducing them. He's bringing them into contact with the person and work of Jesus Christ. And from the very beginning of his gospel, he wants his thesis, his aim to be clear, that he is writing these things. He's reporting history with a theological aim, namely that we would come to see and to savor Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. And so in scene after scene throughout these first eight chapters, we have been encountering Jesus as a mighty Savior and a living Lord, a towering figure on every page of these Gospels as we see not only his might and power and sovereignty as he calms storms and marches on waves, but also his tender mercy and pity and compassion, especially for those that the religious community least expected a rabbi, a respected rabbi, to care for. And we're going to see those twin attributes, his mercy and his might, yet again in our passage this morning in Mark chapter 8. Here's what I think is the main idea of this passage. And, And really, it's three scenes that have been kind of stitched together. Here's what I think is the main idea. As the bread of life, Jesus can feed the whole world. But watch out for the yeast of unbelief. As the bread of life, Jesus can feed the whole world. But watch out for the yeast of unbelief. As I said, Mark presents this to us in three scenes, and so we're going to think about this passage in three points. First, Gentiles be fed. Second, Pharisees be gone. And third, disciples be warned. Gentiles be fed. We'll see that in verses 1 to verse 9. Pharisees be gone. We'll see that in middle of verse 9 through verse 13. And disciples be warned. That's verses 14 to 21. Let's think first about Gentiles be fed. Look at there in verse 1. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have had nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. So here we have another crowd. That's nothing new. But this one, if you notice, is not just passing by. They've been with Jesus for three days. In fact, when he says in verse 2, they've, quote, been with me, he's using, as one commentator points out, a rare and intensified form of the word for remain. This connotes a kind of special adherence and commitment to trust Jesus. The commentator says, this is an unusually positive description of a crowd in Mark. Jesus again finds a reception among Gentiles that he has not found among Jews. And that's the key thing to understand here. He's still in Gentile territory, just as he was in the previous chapter. And so while you may be experiencing, especially uh, as Katie was reading the story, you may have been experiencing a little biblical deja vu, like, hasn't Matt preached this passage before? Well, 
almost. <laughs> but this is actually not a rerun. This is a sequel. And that makes all the difference. See, there are striking similarities between this story and the one you're thinking about, the feeding of the 5,000 back in chapter 6. But there are also several differences, the most important of which is the audience. Jesus is showing that he is offering the nations of the world the same kind of abundant over-the-top provision that he has already offered his own people, the Jews. And so we're meant to hear those sounds of similarity between the two accounts. The similarity is not evidence that Mark has garbled up his accounts and that his memory has failed him. No, Mark knows what he told us in chapter 6. Mark is sharing these stories with us almost back to back so that we would read them and hear the echoes between them so that we would see that what Christ has done for the Jews, he is now doing for the whole world. See, back in chapter 6, Jesus was moved with compassion. If you remember at the sight of the people on the hillside who were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And here, he looks at an entirely different group, a crowd of pagans, idol worshipers, enemies of Israel. And he says the exact same thing about them. The feeding of the 5,000 story back in chapter 6 is mostly told from the vantage point of Mark, the reporter. We, we learn about Jesus. Jesus is the main character, but it's Jesus in the third person. Mark is the one reporting on the events. But what's interesting is that here, it's Jesus in the first person. We're hearing from Jesus directly. There's an immediacy to this account in chapter 8, which I think is Mark's way of telling us that it's, it's as if Jesus is looking in the eye of the Gentile world and saying, I have compassion for you too. When I see you, my heart is moved. Here's how Charles Spurgeon reflects on this verse. Quote, Jesus called his disciples unto him and said, and then Spurgeon says, stop a moment. Prepare your ears for music. Jesus said, I have compassion on the multitude. Oh, the sweetness of that word. If Jesus spoke thus while on earth, he equally says it now that he is exalted on high. For he has carried his tender human heart up to heaven with him. And out of the excellent glory, we may hear him still saying in answer to his people's prayers, I have compassion on the multitude. There is our hope. That heart through which the spear was thrust and out of which there came blood and water is the fountain of hope to the human race. I have compassion on the multitude. Verse 4, his disciples answered, But where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? On its face, this seems like probably the most dense request in all the Bible. I mean, as if the disciples have forgotten what happens in a desolate place when there's a big crowd of hungry people and Jesus is there. Well, such density might be what's going on, but 
You know, it's also possible that the disciples just kind of felt like it would be presumptuous to assume Jesus would perform the same exact miracle he had before. So instead of just making the request outright, they kind of sheepishly broached the subject. This is the perspective of James Edwards, one of my favorite commentators on the Gospel of Mark. He writes, quote, Mark does not portray Jesus as a vendor of miracles. Hankering for miracles is a sign of Jesus' opponents, not his followers. Although the disciples fail in essential ways to understand Jesus, they know his servant posture well enough not to prod him for miraculous intervention. The assumption that the disciples should have lobbied for a miracle in the Decapolis is as great a misunderstanding of them as is their misunderstanding of him. We can't psychoanalyze the disciples and know exactly what was behind this question in verse 4. But regardless of their memory and their strategy, it is clear that what happens next is a platform for Jesus to work a wonder. Verse 5, how many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. I just love how matter-of-fact Mark's reporting here is. Like, he's reporting this as if he's someone who's seen this kind of thing before. He's no longer breathlessly recounting what Jesus has done. I mean, the crowd is astonished. Mark is not. And by this point in his gospel, we shouldn't be either. This is the kind of thing that happens when Jesus enters the scene. Verse 8, the people ate and were satisfied. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. Whereas in the previous episode, there were 5,000 men. Here, Mark tells us there are 4,000 people. Now, by the way, I think that this is just one of those little details in passing that bears the mark of historic authenticity. Because if you were trying to write a story in which you're trying to convince people to believe and to follow and to give their lives for this guy, the way that you're going to do it is you're going to show a very clear progression in the miraculous power of the main character. You're going to move from the feeding of the 4,000 to look, he can feed 5,000 and it's getting more and more difficult and yet Jesus can do it all. But no, Mark tells us that he goes from feeding 5,000 just men to 4,000 people total, which is a little anticlimactic if this were fiction. But he tells us it this way from 5,000 to 4,000 because this is the way it actually happened. It's also worth noting that in the previous story, there were 12 basketfuls left over, which symbolize uh, Christ's sufficient, abundant provision for the 12 tribes of Israel. But here, there are only seven. 
Uh, it's a different word for basket. It's actually referring to something larger, more like a hamper. It's the same word used in Acts when Paul is lowered down the city wall in a basket. But the number seven has biblical significance as well. There, seven is the biblical number for the whole, for completion, for the world. This may even be a symbolic reference to the words of Moses way back in Deuteronomy chapter 5. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. But whereas The Israelites had been commanded to destroy the nations. Jesus has shown up to feed them. And speaking of Moses, Jesus is here presented to us as another manna provider. But the manna, of course, if you remember from the Exodus story, there was only enough manna for the given day. But with Jesus, there is a surplus. There is more than we need. Because he is the true and better Moses who gives us the ultimate manna because he himself is the inexhaustible supply. Remember the Syrophoenician woman in the last passage that we looked at a couple weeks ago. Uh, She she came to Jesus. You remember what she said? What she had the the courage, the pluck to say? She said, "I, I, I know I'm a Gentile. I know I'm a dog, but I believe that you can satisfy me if you'll just give me access to the crumbs that fall from your table. Well, here in the very next scene, we see that Jesus has come to provide not merely crumbs for the nations, but a surplus of satisfaction for all those who put their hope and trust in him. Gentiles, be fed. Number two, Pharisees, be gone. Look at the middle of verse nine. After Jesus had sent them away, interestingly, that's not the word for get rid of, it's the word for liberate. After Jesus had liberated them, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. Verse 11, the Pharisees came and began to question Jesus to test him, to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. This is not a picture of curious, open, honest inquiry. These Pharisees are not on the fence. They're on the attack. And words like questioning and testing are not ones you want describing your approach to the Lord Jesus. In fact, this word for testing only shows up four times in the Gospel of Mark, three in reference to the Pharisees, the other in reference to Satan when he tested Jesus in the wilderness back in chapter one. If you recall the last time that Jesus interacted with the Pharisees in the previous chapter, it didn't go so well. It wasn't pleasant. He denounced them for their traditionalism and hypocrisy, but they're like cockroaches. They just won't go away. I mean, they must have spies on Jesus because the moment he re-enters Jewish terrain, they're on him immediately, ready for a clash, picking up where they left off. Come on, Jesus, give us a sign. I mean, we know you've shown us some cool stuff. We saw you heal a paralytic. We saw you heal a man with a withered hand. 
We've seen the stuff you can do on earth, but show us a sign in the heavens. Give us something big, Jesus. Something we can't possibly doubt. Verse 12. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. This is an even deeper sigh of grief and anger than what we saw at the end of chapter 7 with the deaf and mute man. There, Jesus was sighing about a physical malady that was ravaging his good creation. But here, he is sighing in grief and anger, not because of just some kind of physical ailment, but because of spiritual blindness, which is far more serious. I refuse to perform for you, Jesus says. I am not here for your entertainment. You're right that there's a trial in session, but you're wrong that I'm the one on trial. I'm not under your judgment, your verdict. You are under mine. One commentator sums sums it up like this. In the synoptic gospels, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the demand for signs is itself a sign of attempting to gain by empirical means what can only be gained by faith and trust. Faith that depends on proof is not faith. Notice he's not saying faith that involves proof. There is a role for reason in the Christian life. But faith that entirely depends on proof is not faith, only veiled doubt. If a man hires a private eye to spy on his wife while he's away in order to prove her faithfulness, the detective's proofs will scarcely guarantee the husband's faith. If you're not a a Christian, if you understand yourself to to be someone who is not yet convinced of the claims of Jesus, I wonder, what is, the, what is your real desire in your questioning, in your searching? There's got to be a level of desire, a level of curiosity, a level of something because you're sitting in a church service, if you haven't noticed. But there are different ways to be sitting in a church service. There are different ways to be engaging with the person and the claims of Jesus Christ. It's possible to do so as a, as a good faith questioner, and it's also possible to do so as a bad faith questioner. And a lot of the difference is, is the difference between essentially faith seeking understanding and unbelief seeking justification. I think a searching question for you to consider, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, is that if, If we could answer all of your objections and all of your questions about Christianity to your satisfaction, would you submit your life to Jesus? If not, the problem might not be Jesus. In other words, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? Or, Are all of your questions, your objections, your doubts, 
maybe not all of them, but are some of them smoke screens, defense mechanisms, way of, ways of keeping the God who made you and is calling you to himself at arm's length? Your answer to questions like that, if we answered all your objections, would you submit to Jesus? Your answer to that question is actually more telling than any of our answers to your other questions. Your other questions are valid. We welcome this. We welcome them. We want RCBC to be a safe place to ask hard questions, to bring your doubts and your struggles. But examine your heart and your motives and consider, are you coming to Jesus with a hardened, recalcitrant, stubborn, resistant heart like these Pharisees who actually didn't want Jesus to be who he said he was? And therefore, all of their questions were just a way of keeping him at a distance. The ultimate response, by the way, to the Pharisees' demand for a sign is the one that they're talking to. That's God's ultimate answer. Jesus was the sign they were looking for and missing. Jesus is the ultimate sign and display of God's kingdom power. It reminds me of what the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You don't have to turn there, but some of you may remember as I'm reading this why I'm quoting this. You, you may be like, oh yeah, that, that's exactly, Paul maybe had Mark chapter 8 in mind. Because here's what he says, 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 20. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached. That is, through the preaching of the gospel, God was pleased to save those who believe. Verse 22, Jews demand signs. So it was happening in Jesus' day. It was happening in Paul's generation. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both among Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So Christ is the, God's ultimate answer to the clamoring for signs. Christ is the ultimate answer to the clamoring for wisdom because he is himself the embodiment of both power and wisdom. As Paul concludes in 1 Corinthians 1.25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Verse 13 then he left them. That is, then Jesus left the Pharisees, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. It is never a good day when Jesus abruptly turns his back on you and sails away. But Jesus doesn't have time for bad faith questioners. Jesus doesn't have time for people who just want him to perform some parlor tricks like a magician to wow them. See, Jesus sailing away isn't merely a physical departure. Mark is showing that there is a deeper 
cleavage, a deeper departure here in the relationship between Jesus and the Pharisees. This is a parting of ways. As one person put it, Jesus will offer this generation no noisy sign from heaven, only the wind whistling through an empty tomb after his crucifixion. Pharisees, be gone. Third and finally, disciples, be warned. Verse 14, the disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. He's just stuffed 4,000 stomachs with plenty to spare, and they are anxious. They're concerned because they can only find one loaf, which prompts Jesus to issue a somewhat cryptic warning. Look out for, be aware of, a certain kind of yeast. Perhaps you'll remember in the Passover meal, the Israelites were forbidden from using leaven in their bread. And so in Jewish thought, leaven or yeast came to take on kind of a negative connotation to to symbolize the spreading influence of evil. Well, what specifically is the hazardous yeast-like influence of the Pharisees and Herod that Jesus is talking about here in verse 15? Well, broadly, it's the hazard of, of unbelief, but specifically, it's a hardness of heart that not only disbelieves yourself, but wants to influence others to misperceive reality and to disbelieve as well. Watch out, Jesus is saying, these people are fomenting unbelief. Yeah, there are different kinds of it. There's the moral, religious version of unbelief that you see in the Pharisees. There's the immoral, irreligious version of unbelief that you see with Herod, but the ingredients are in both recipes. The unbelief pervades both kinds of hearts. And just like yeast, that unbelief doesn't sit still. It spreads. Which means, beloved, if you are not constantly and vigilantly checking it and curbing it and stopping it, then the tentacles of unbelief will start to wrap their way around your own heart, your own imagination, and choke out your faith. Perhaps you've heard the term collective memory. It refers to how groups remember their past, especially defining moments that have shaped their identity as a nation or as a people. Well, church membership is basically an exercise in collective memory because unbelief begins where remembering the gospel ends. And so we remember it. We don't stop remembering it so that unbelief will never have a chance to commence and to take off in our hearts and lives and our congregation. This is why we we must remember it and rehearse it week in and week out. When we're gathered on Sundays, when we're scattered throughout the week. Now, this is not to say that, that we fancy ourselves, or could ever be a church that is immune to, impervious to unbelief. No, we will all be tempted to unbelief at times. Welcome to Christianity. But the way to push back on the encroaching unbelief is not by focusing on it. The way to focus on, to fight unbelief is not by focusing on unbelief. 
It's by fixing your gaze on Jesus, on the person and work and promises and glory of Jesus. This is why we must continue to keep him front and center at RCBC. Because otherwise, our gaze will begin to drift, and so will our faith. I think of a few other verses in the Bible that I think help to reinforce this idea. Now, these are verses that we tend to read in isolation, and it's fine to read and apply the Bible individually, but think about a verse like Hebrews 2.1, we must pay the most careful attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. We. Hebrews is a sermon to a congregation. This is a summons to churches just like ours. We must pay the most careful attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Did you hear the either or there? You are, you are either. We as a church are either paying careful attention or drifting away. There's no middle ground. Or think about 2 Timothy 2 and the very last letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to his protege, Timothy, where he simply says, remember Jesus Christ. Now, pause. That's something you would expect to find in a holy book, a Christian book, you know, an inspired apostle, if he were writing to like a brand new Christian. He is writing to a pastor and a man of God. He's actually already mentioned Jesus 13 times in the brief letter. And yet he still tells Timothy with the remaining ink of his life, remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. This is the key to Christian growth. We go back in order to go forward. Some of you will be watching football this afternoon. It's exactly how a quarterback throws the ball. In order to go forward, he must first pull it back. And to the degree he pulls it back, he's able to launch it forward. Your Christian life, your Christian life will only be as successful as your ability to remember. Our church life will only be as successful as our ability to remember. And one other passage, just one verse from the Old Testament Psalm 103, one of my favorite psalms, verse 2 says, Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. It's not a suggestion, it's a command. Praise the Lord and stop forgetting what he's done. Don't forget all of his benefits. But to be honest, this application saying that Christians have spiritual amnesia, that we're prone to forget. It's a good application to make, but it's also kind of common. It's kind of intuitive. Let's just take it one click deeper and be honest with ourselves here. Because it's not entirely true to say, oh, we're just forgetful people. We're just forgetful people. That's who Christians are. I've heard this preached before. It's being preached again. We're just forgetful people, so we need to stop being forgetful. We need to resolve to remember. No, we don't have some kind of universal amnesia. 
we have a very selective kind of amnesia, if we're honest. We are actually great at remembering certain things, aren't we? We're great at remembering all that we've accomplished. We're great at remembering what we've done and making sure others remember it as well. But that's not all. We're, we're not just great at remembering all the good stuff we've done. We're also really, really skilled at remembering all the bad stuff others have done to us. Our memories, I mean, let's not give ourselves a pass. Our memories are impressive in these areas. Brothers and sisters, what does it say about our hearts that we find it so easy to remember our triumphs and yet so difficult to remember God's? We can recall in exquisite detail. We can give the play-by-play of the ways that we have impressed and benefited others, but the assumption behind verses like Psalm 103.2 is that we aren't so good at remembering all the manifold ways that God has shown up and benefited us. David, in Psalm 103, after he says, forget not his benefits, he goes on to list several. And I would encourage you to do so this week. Take some time to forget not all of God's benefits to you, his personal and particular benefits to you, and then meet up with another church member and compare your lists. Talk them through and then praise the Lord for all the ways in which he has proven himself to be more than sufficient for your deepest needs. Well, how do the disciples respond to this warning about the yeast? Verse 16, They discussed this with one another and said, Jesus, it is because we have no bread. Notice that Mark doesn't say that they blurted this out. No, this was their considered conclusion after their formal huddle. Like this was the best they could come up with. They, They deliberate in the corner and then... One of them steps out and says, okay, Jesus, here's our, here's our conclusion. What you mean is that we don't have enough bread. The source of all understanding is there in the boat with them, and they're off in a corner deliberating about their little loaf. The unbelief Jesus has just warned about is fermenting among them. By, by now, they've walked with him for a long time, and yet still, when they hear a word like yeast, they can't see beyond a loaf of bread. Verse 17, aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember, here he is again, calling them to the discipline of collective memory. What I just talked about. Verse 19, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? Do you still not understand? understand? And they replied, 
Oh wait, we, we don't know how they replied. The story ends on a cliffhanger. We don't know the disciples' response, at least not here. It's almost as if Mark wants us to insert ourselves, ourselves into the story. And as we do so, we should pray that God would open our eyes and unstop our ears so that we can hear and see and behold and savor the beauty of Jesus in all of his words and works. Well, in conclusion, you notice what Jesus is doing here at the very end. He's pointing back to the bread in the miracles. But of course, the reason that Jesus is pointing back to the bread is because the bread points to him. We saw this when we looked at the feeding of the 5,000. This anticipates the Last Supper. This anticipates the, the wedding supper of the Lamb in the age to come. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, which means house of bread. And on the final evening of his life, he took bread and broke it, saying, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In light of this passage, I'm excited to celebrate the Lord's Supper with you all as a church family this evening. Friend, Jesus is more than enough to meet all of your needs. I don't know what needs you think are paramount in your life, most pressing, most urgent, but your deepest need is not medical or physical or economical or social. Your biggest need is spiritual, and that is to be reconciled to the God who made you and who loves you, but whom you have offended in your rebellion, by living your life for yourself rather than for him. Now, maybe your rebellion has taken on a kind of moral, religious tenor like the Pharisees. Maybe it has that immoral, irreligious tenor like Herod and his followers. But there's more than one way to rebel. But the good news is there is only one way to come to Jesus, and it's not difficult all you must do in order to be made right with God and experience the forgiveness of sins and abundant life. The satisfaction of your soul now and forevermore is to simply turn away from your sin and put your trust in Christ. If you've never done that, even if you've been in church many Sundays of your life, if you've never turned from your sin and trusted in Christ, bowed your knee to him, pledged allegiance to him as your savior and king, there is nothing we'd be more glad to talk with you about after the service than that. I challenge you, don't leave today without talking to someone here about how you can be made right with God. I'll be standing at the door. Others here would love to help you think about what it would mean to follow Christ and know this kind of abundant joy. And Christians, especially those of you who are fellow church members with me, let's lock arms with one another and recommit ourselves this week and in the weeks to come to the discipline and the privilege of collective memory. Because after all, what better thing is there to remember than all the Lord has done for us? Let's not forget his benefits. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that so often we only 
think, we only envision you in terms of human possibilities. When in reality, Lord, your power and your provision are more than enough to meet our needs. Help us to be a church that helps one another in the fight against unbelief, the spreading yeast-like influence of unbelief. Help us to be a church that stands firm on your word, your truth, and your promises, and who does so together as we look not at the problem, but most of all at the solution, which is the beauty of Jesus Christ, and it's in his beautiful and worthy name we pray. Amen.